We're going to be taking a look this morning at the book of Genesis, chapter 1. This is going to start on page 1 in your pew Bible. So if you would stand with me as I read God's word for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word that you would open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, that you would allow your truth to penetrate deep within us and that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now this morning we're actually starting an entirely new sermon series on the topic of evangelism. Um, And if if that made you squirm in your pew a little bit this morning, um, you're not alone. According to Professor Jerem Bars, uh, Christians are often afraid to study evangelism because so often they've been made to feel guilty and inadequate about their involvement in making the gospel known. It's kind of like... uh, We've been driving, taking some road trips this summer. It's like when you, when you put the Waze app up on your phone to get somewhere. I don't know if you've ever used this app or not, but it shows you a couple numbers, right? The first number is the number of the speed that you're supposed to be going. And the second number is the speed that you're actually going. And I've noticed that it doesn't, you know, it also will let you know, and I'm not advocating for this or, or not, but, you know, it'll let you know if there's like a, a highway patrolman coming up on the highway, and, and, and knowing that will actually slow me down for a little bit, maybe a couple minutes. But what I've noticed that slows me down a little bit longer is that my kids have picked up on what those two numbers mean. And then they start to ask me, Daddy, how come you're going over the first number and the second and the number it's now showing us is red? I go, okay. You know, they can kind of shame me into driving how I, want, how I should be going for a lot longer than that patrolman sitting on the side of the highway. Okay, and so, so just like evangelism is kind of like that. You know, this, this is a topic that we kind of know or think that we should be doing something about it, but maybe we aren't practicing it. And, and we're probably thinking, you know, this isn't something that we can just learn about, right? This isn't just theory. This isn't just academic. This has got to be practical. It's got to be something that we do. Now, some people aren't really afraid of the topic of evangelism. They actually go the other way, and they might get a little bit too excited about evangelism. And what I mean by that is, like, they want the answer. You know, how do I address that person, that skeptical, atheistic, whatever person that comes up and asks me that question, and I just want to know the answer that smacks them in the face and puts them in their place? Okay, that might be you this morning. Probably not, but it might be. Um, so, So here's what we want to say is that, You know, as we study this topic, this is going to be something that, you know, you're not coming to us, you know, Randy and I, Randy's got a lot more experience than I do in the Word, but, you know, we're not the subject matter experts of evangelism. 
You know, we're probably not going to give you the answer that you're going to use to shut someone up and, and, and win them to Christ like in 30 seconds or less. That's probably not realistic, okay? That can happen. I'm not saying it can't, but probably not realistic. But, but what we're going to do is to look into God's word and see all the different implications that this has for us, to see his design and desire for evangelism, for us that we would be encouraged and empowered and, and actually excited to go and fulfill his call and command to go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, you, you may know this already, but the word evangelism, you're not going to find that in any page in your Bible. But it comes from a biblical term, a, a Greek term, which means good news. And so an evangelist is someone who brings good news. And this can be really good news about anything. Uh, there's a friend of mine who likes to say that, that we're all naturally evangelists for the very best things in our lives. Now think about that. You know, think about the, the greatest things in your life, your favorite sports teams, right? War Eagle or Roll Tide or maybe something else altogether. Maybe you like real football with professionals. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, we, we can't seem to, to enjoy a good meal somewhere without somebody taking out their, their phone and taking a picture of it. And why is that? It's because they want everybody to know how great this thing is and where they can go to get a great meal. You know, if, if you want to get some, some great barbecue, you talk to Ben MacArthur and he will tell you all the places in town that you can go to get the best brisket, the best wings, the best pork. He's got like a ranking system, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's informal, but he can tell you, right? Depending on what day of the week and what's open, what's closed. We are naturally evangelistic about the very best things in our life. Whether it's the school that you went to, your favorite vacation spot, your favorite movies, your books, cars, the list is endless. You know, when we experience something good, we just want to let people know about it. And we can't stop talking about the things that we're most passionate about. We want to share that with other people so that they can experience that same joy that we experience. Now, now some years ago, our, our previous dog, uh, we got him as a, a puppy from the pound. Okay, and, and we took him home, and he was, we should have known better, right? 12 weeks old, 25 pounds. That's a, that's a sign that you're going to have a very large dog someday. And so we brought him home, and, and, and we're, you know, you know, we're, we're having dinner one night, and we're eating steak. There's a little bit of steak left, and I'm thinking, you know what? This dog is just going to really love this steak. And so I, I cut up a little piece, and I, I put it down there on the floor for him, and he puts it in his mouth, and you know what he does? Spits it right back out. I'm, I'm incredulous. Like, are you kidding me? You're a dog, and this is steak. And, and so now, I, I, now I've got the steak in my hand, and I'm going, hey, come on. It's, it's not that bad. Like, it's great. You're going to love it. You're going to try it. And in the second attempt, he ate it and loved it. And then I spent the next 10 years trying to keep this dog away from any sort of people food that we had in our house. You know, in one particular moment, we, I was outside getting ready to put some nice big fat ribeyes on the grill. And he comes over and he swipes an entire about, let's say, a 20-ounce steak off of the plate. And I'm chasing him around the backyard, ruining the day that I made him take that second attempt at the steak. Right? So we love to share the things that we love with the people in our lives. And, and that is the message of evangelism, which is come and hear this good news, right? Try it. You'll like it. Now, Psalm, Psalm 34, 8 says, 
Oh, taste and see that what? The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Come, taste and see the goodness of God. Experience him and know him and delight in him. He is good. And yet so often, that's not the message the world hears from the church. Pastor Tim Keller wrote this recently. He said that, that many evangelicals have adopted a shrill, harsh tone toward modern culture that shows no desire to attract or evangelize, has put out a not welcome sign to more than half the country, those being liberal and secular. Now, some, some people ask this question, why should we honestly even care about the secular, modern liberals and atheists? You know, when you, when you think about it, those people have made their choice, Right? Like, they've, they've rejected God, they mock people of faith, they've abandoned Christian values, whatever those might mean to you, right? They, they've made their bed, and now they have to lie in it. And, and honestly, why should I give a rip about putting out a welcome mat to people that don't welcome me? Well, to answer that question, that's where we're going this morning, is to Genesis chapter 1, our text. See, in the beginning of the beginning, really before the beginning began, God was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons existing in perfect harmony, love, righteousness, goodness, power, light, truth, peace. All of this was perfect within himself. And then this good God began to create a good universe through the unparalleled power of his voice. He spoke and called into existence the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and the land and the sea and the plants and the animals and the fish and and everything. And he created something out of nothing using the power of his voice. And I'm guessing that you have never been able to do that. That you have never been able to take nothing and create something just by speaking. Well, Well, God can. But then in the crowning moment of creation, God created something different. That's where we pick up our text this morning. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The great scholar and reformer John Calvin wrote this about the creation of humanity. He said, they, of all of the works of God, are the noblest and most admirable specimen of his justice, wisdom, and goodness. See, in humans, God created something different, something that would bear his image. And that, that Hebrew word for image it, it comes from this idea of, of being carved or cut out of something. If you, if you continue on in Genesis, that very next chapter, chapter 2, we see that, that God created man. It says this, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. You see, unlike the rest of creation where God spoke and something appeared that wasn't, God gets down in the dirt. He uses material that he had already made, and then he carves it, he molds it, he shapes it into a new thing. But that was just the form of a man. In Genesis 2-7, we read that to, to animate him or to bring him to life, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God breathed into the nostrils. When I think about this, I think back to my CPR training, 
If you've ever taken that and you've done some infant CPR, what do you do with the, with the child who's not breathing? You, you actually get down in their face and you cover their entire mouth and nose with your mouth because it's big enough to do that. And you breathe into them with the hope that they will become alive again, that they will continue to breathe. And so God gets down in the dust and he breathes life into a dust, lifeless dust. You know, what deep significance we have just of the creation of man. Now, Richard Phillips notes that God made man face to face for a covenantal relationship of fellowship, communion, and love. See, God created man and he didn't do it from a distance. He didn't just speak and call out and then man existed. He breathed and he got down face to face to show them that this was the way that they were to exist with the ability to know God and to love God in this special way. This, this image of God is what separates humans from animals. That's why I might love my dog, you know, except for when I'm chasing it around the backyard with a stake. But, but that love for my dog will never be greater than my love for a human being. I can't think even for a second that my, my dog is more valuable than a person. Uh, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this in The Weight of Glory. He said that, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. Right? Your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. Uh, another commentator writes, a, a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all of this is that that child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child once was not, but now as a created soul he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that, sh- that soul still shall live. So being part of, part of being, being created in God's image means that, that even though all of us have a beginning, that there is some part of us, that part that we call the soul, where there will be no ending. See, humanity was created for eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that that God made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity into men's heart so that he may not understand. He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, we can't fully grasp this. We don't quite get it, but each of us has this innate sense that this is a true thing, right? Right? That our time here on earth is finite, but that our existence is eternal. And that's that's why it hurts so much when we lose someone that we love. We we understand sort of deeply that things were not supposed to be this way, that we weren't created to say goodbye forever, but we were created to live face to face both with God and with one another. And so God blessed his image bearers and he gave them this mandate to fill the earth, which is to, to create more image bearers. And then to have dominion and authority over the animals and the fish and the birds and the land. And and they're supposed to steward the entire world. To work it, to use it, to enjoy it in a a way that that nothing else that's created can enjoy it. But the thing that really separated them, what they were able to do as God's image bearers, is to enjoy that union with God. To walk with God and to talk with God. To know God and to worship God. See, people were created good along with the rest of creation. Although Genesis says after the creation of man that that everything was very good. 
Really, in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's a good good, like doubly good, extra good. But that inherent goodness and perfect innocence was lost in the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, what we in the Reformed faith just called the fall. Right? That now that, that, that inherent sinful nature is passed along forever to their children and to their children and to their children's children, but that image of God remains within as well. You may remember from your high school civics class, what is the, the introduction to the Declaration of Independence declare? That we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created what? Equal. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. See, according to the founding documents of this country, a life in Afghanistan has the same value as a life in Alabama. And where do you think this idea comes from? That a man in prison in Costa Rica would have the same value as that infant child cocooning in her womb um, in Huntsville. How precious is a life? See, it doesn't matter if you're a celebrity or if you're a migrant, if you're a politician or a refugee or a CEO, convicted murderer, or, or even, God forbid, some sort of socialist, right? Every single life is precious and priceless. See, human life is never less than, regardless of its geography or its biology or its particular worldview. Life is life. All of it is sacred no matter how it appears on the outside. Several years ago, um, after his father died, a man named Omar Khan, Osman Khan, was going through his dad's closet. And he found this strange-looking glass type of object wrapped up in um, some cloth in the the shoe, sorry, in the toe of of his father's shoe. Okay? So he finds this wad of cloth in the toe of his father's shoe, and he he pulls it out and unwraps this, and there's this kind of glass-looking thing. And he thinks, oh, this is really interesting. I'm going to take it and make a paperweight. And so he takes this object, and he puts it on top of his desk, and he leaves it there for several years until he finds out that this thing is actually, this this rock glass-looking thing is actually a diamond. 184.75 carats, known as the Jacob Diamond that his father had purchased for the sum of $50,000, sight unseen. But when it was delivered, he didn't like the way that it looked, so he wrapped that up in cloth, threw it in a shoe, and, and put it in the closet. And so it sat for years in the closet inside the smelly shoe, and then it sat for years on top of his desk, thinking this is just a worthless paperweight. And then he came to find out, a few years later, how valuable it was. And then he took it off his desk and he put it in a vault. Right? And sometime later, he took it and sold it to the Indian government for $13 million. The value of the Jacob Diamond today is estimated to be over $150 million. So even though it sat in, for years inside a shoe, it sat for years on top of a desk, its value was not diminished by its lack of use or the inability of its owners to properly identify what it was. And so the infinite value of human life comes from our creator, and not from anything else. Not from its present use or its misuse. That's why C.S. Lewis can also say about people, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So this is why evangelism can never be considered an optional task 
for a Christian. See, the followers of Jesus know that the good news is so good precisely because the present situation is so dire. See, apart from Jesus, the news is not good, it's bad. Right? We, we briefly mentioned it before, but that fall is not just a footnote in human history to explain why we take more cookies or, or why we curse when we stub our toe. When Adam and Eve sin, all of humanity is plunged into sin with them, this treasonous rebellion against that good creator. See, just a few pages later, God tells Noah that every intention of the thoughts of the human heart was only continually evil. See, God had warned Adam and Eve that, that the day you sin against God, God is the day you surely die. And that was true because if life comes from face-to-face communion with God, then death is the natural result of being separated from God's face. See, Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, the, the first naturally conceived and born human being, was not coincidentally also the first one to take another human life. See, we, we might not all be murderers, and I don't think we are. But we're not, we are all totally and completely corrupted by sin to the point where we are now what, uh, what Henry Blotcher calls but a grisly shadow of our former glories. See, God's original image remains, but, but now it needs to be renewed. And, and we can't renew it on our own. The heart of the gospel is that we all need to be renewed, but no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. See, the same news that is good for me is actually good for everyone. And the evangelist knows that the good news is only possible because the work of the perfect image of God, who offers redemption and restoration to everyone who comes to him. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, Jesus was the image that wasn't stained by sin. He's the image of perfect obedience. He's the image of perfect holiness, the image of perfect love, the image of perfect submission. And that image came for us, not just to show us the way back to God, but to be the way for us. And we all need him, right? Each and every one of us. The the apostle writes that, the apostle Paul writes that Christians should have this thought in mind. He said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, right? That that each of us as believers should recognize and understand that that we are the worst, right? That, That I am the worst sinner. I am in the most need of grace, but I receive mercy for this reason that in us as the worst sinners, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, Jesus came to save the worst sinners, those who couldn't save themselves, and that, that's all of us, to seek and to save the lost, to those who couldn't find the way that he would be the way. And so we are called to carry that message. But it's really Jesus the one who saves, right? See, in evangelism, we're just responsible for being obedient to God, and he is the one that's responsible for the results. Uh, Bill Bright said that success in evangelism is just taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and then leaving the results up to God. See, Jesus is the best thing ever. He lived and died and rose again for, to be for us what we couldn't do, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. There's no greater gift. There's no greater love. There's, there's no other way to the Father. And if that's what we believe, is that something that naturally flows out of us? 
Right? Is that something that we just love to talk about? Have we, have we really experienced him in that way? Do, believe, do we believe that this is a good news for everyone, or do we think it's just a good news for me? See, if I believe it's for everyone, then I'm not going to be able to contain it. Now, now medical science has made, made many great advances over the years, but the current mortality rate is still the same that it's always been. You know, one person for every one person. See, our time in this world is, is going to come to an end, which means that every day we get another day closer to eternity. And we're going to bring him glory one way or the other. Whether we receive the justice we deserve or we receive the grace that we don't. But that greater joy is in repentance. And, and Jesus said, you know what, there's, there's a party in heaven that angels rejoice every time even a single sinner repents and turns to God. And every, every single heart that submits to Jesus starts this heavenly par- party that's, that's better and greater than anything that we can imagine. It's this party that will never stop and the joy will continue to increase. And do we believe that? See, it starts with trusting him, with loving him, with experiencing him face to face, both now and forever. And if we know Jesus, that party will never end. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you are good. Regardless of of whether or not we even fully understand what that means right now. Jesus, we want to be able to share our faith. We want to be able to encourage others that, that this thing that we come and do here isn't something that we feel compelled to do. But Lord, it's something that we get to do. We get to come and sing your praise. We get to come and give thanks to you. We get to come and learn about you and what you want for us because of the way and the depth that you love us. So Jesus, we pray that you would stir in our hearts a passionate desire for you. Lord, that we wouldn't contain that. That we would look out and see our our brothers and sisters and neighbors and uncles and friends and, and cousins as fellow Beings created in the image of God, precious in his sight. Lord, that we would be willing and able to share that good news with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.